Good morning, everyone. Could please make our way to the seat. Good to see you all here. So last week we talked about the final wave of persecution in the church. And this week we're going to swing completely the other direction and we're going to talk about the establishment of Christianity when Christianity actually becomes a part of the Roman government, a part of the um, state apparatus around the Mediterranean and Christianity becomes official. So the verse, Bible verse that I put here at the top of your handout is something I'd like you to reflect on. Um, so this is written in the first century, also under Roman rule, but in very different circumstances. Um, in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus says, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. The question that I'd like to keep, you to keep in the back of your mind while we're studying today is, what happens when the emperor is now a follower of this same God? Um, what happens to faith in the way that it is practiced, and how should Christians deal with suddenly having power? In the first three centuries of Christian existence, the uh, secular government was something other than Christianity and something generally opposed to Christianity, as we've seen, sometimes violently, sometimes in a sort of uneasy coexistence. <clears throat> so the great um, personality that we need to talk about in this transition here is a Roman emperor, and his name is Constantine. Constantine the Great, he's been called um, by many historians, uh, both contemporary to him and afterward. And he is the next important emperor to come after Diocletian. Um, but there's a little bit of complexity in that transition that I'd like to talk to you about right now. So Constantine rules from 306 to 337. And if you remember uh, last week when we were talking about the Great Persecution, I ended it at 311. So the, um, I mean, there are a couple aftershocks that go on until about 313, but the, the main wave of the persecution goes on until 311, so this uh, overlaps with the beginning of Constantine's reign. So if you remember from the last week, Diocletian. Diocletian is the, the, emperor, the emperor who put Humpty Dumpty back together again. So the empire is just about to fall to pieces, and Diocletian comes out, takes the reins, and systematically puts things back together, both militarily, economically, politically and sets up this new system, a new system with not just one emperor, but a college of emperors, four different emperors um, throughout the empire, the idea being that the empire is too big. It has too many enemies, and you need people that can answer the call militarily, politically, close to the border, close to the hotspots, because with ancient communication being what it was, it could take as much as a year to go for news to travel across the empire one direction to let the emperor know what was going on, for him to mobilize an army, and get it back out to the place where they needed it. So uh, Diocletian had divided things up, and there were four emperors, really kind of think of it in like four corners of the empire, two senior ones, two junior ones. And he had set it up so that the senior ones would actually retire at the exact same point, like an emperor retiring, this is insane, like this has never happened before in the history of the Roman Empire. Diocletian actually did it. He ruled for 20 years, he was getting old, he said, I'm sick, I'm tired, I want to go put it around in my garden on the Adriatic in this really nice castle that I've gotten built, and I'm kind of over all this stuff, and so we need to retire. And he was happy to retire, but his other senior Augustus wasn't really so happy about it. And anyway, they, so the two senior guys, they're called Augustus, retire, and then their junior, the, each one of the junior in the East and the West, they're called Caesar, 
fees are supposed to move up, appoint two new, or got, uh, become Augustus, appoint two new Caesars underneath him. So the idea is that now you have four emperors at any given time, two senior ones, two junior ones, and so there's always somebody next in line. If one of the senior guys gets killed off, there's always still, still somebody. This is supposed to get rid of all the unhappy transitions that occur when a single emperor dies unexpectedly from sickness, from uh, induced sickness by poison, from uh, <laughs> induced uh, um, injury, <laughs> various sharp objects being pushed into him by various enemies. Uh, it's supposed to get, to get rid of all that stuff. And um, the problem is that once Diocletian's force of personality was out of the picture, things didn't really work. So his system for, he, he picked out who his, two, who his colleagues were going to be, who the two senior ones and the two junior ones, and he even picked out who the new, two new junior ones were supposed to be. Unfortunately, what he did when he picked out those two new junior guys, he picked very, very accomplished generals, very um, well-known people who would have been very good at the job. The problem is that they weren't the natural sons of the two new senior emperors. And those natural sons were also rather well-accomplished, well-known people who felt like they had a dynastic claim on being a part of this whole system and were very angry at being passed over. One of those sons is Constantine. His father, confusingly enough, his name is Constantius, who was one of these four emperors um, put together by Diocletian and who was ruling over the northwest of the empire up in Britain. While Constantine was in modern Turkey, near actually near where Diocletian was. And so Constantine gets passed over, realizes in 305 that all of a sudden his position is pretty bad because he is, even if he didn't want to be a rival to the new emperor, he's going to be perceived as one. And so actually he makes this dramatic escape from um, Asia Minor through using the imperial post, taking horse after horse after horse, these setups on the Roman road to get all the way to Great Britain in record time and go join his father. And his father happens to die unexpectedly in 306, and his father's armies say, we don't like this whole system that Diocletian has put together. We're going to proclaim Constantine. And we're not just going to proclaim him Caesar, one of the junior emperors. We're going to proclaim him Augustus, and we're going to make him the major single emperor. So for a brief period, with, this, with Constantine being one extra son who has been passed over but wants to, be in the, wants to be in on things, four official emperors, another son over in the east, you actually got six emperors running around in one period um, between this time. And over the course of the next six years, between 306 and 312, Constantine fights his way through, essentially destroying one rival after another until um, there's one person left in the west um, that he has to deal with, and then there's another emperor off in the east that he's going to make peace with for the time being and then take care of things in the west. And this is where Constantine's... Um, relationship to Christianity comes in in a big way. It's in the year 312. Constantine was leading an army um, across the Alps, getting ready to invade Italy and to uh, challenge his, uh, his rival, his name was Maxentius, in the city of Rome. Um, and Constantine had a vision that he tells his biographer about uh, a couple of decades later. And in this vision, um, Constantine sees he, he prays, first of all, prays to God the Son, prays to, he isn't really sure quite what it is that he believes. Um, Constantine was raised a pagan and had uh, belief in a, a, an unconquered son, um, the idea of a, a sort of a supreme pagan deity above all the other um, sort of uh, Zeus and Apollo sort of um, 
traditional um, Greco-Roman gods. And, but he was pretty open to these new kinds of things. He'd been, he'd been raised in the East, where Christianity was actually quite a bit stronger than it was in the West. And so in 312, he sees a vision that he tells us about. And he sees that this is a, um, that God, Christ, God of the Christians is going to be on his side. And according to that vision, he goes out into battle against his um, rival in Rome and against sort of traditional military odds. Um, his rival outnumbered him and had the strategic advantage. Constantine wins and decides that, that he has won because he has the favor of the Christian God. And so he himself becomes a Christian and decides to start um, favoring the Christian religion throughout the empire. And first, one of the first things he does that makes this official is in the next year, in 313, now that we've gone from six emperors to two, we've just got one, Constantine in the west, and another an emperor named Licinius left in the east. And these uh, two jointly issue an edict of toleration. So in 313, they, um, an issue, and it's called the Edict of Milan. Um, so the two emperors meet together for, actually for the last time before they um, finally duke it out about a dozen years later. They meet together in Italy and they issue this document saying that um, Christianity is a legal religion in the empire. And this is the last time that Christianity can be official. Up to this point, um, Christianity had been illegal and open to persecution. But as we discussed, it was never continually persecuted everywhere in the empire for three centuries, but there was always the possibility. It would kind of come in waves. And this last wave was the greatest, and once this wave receded, Christianity actually emerges triumphant, being legal. Although not yet being the sole religion of the empire. That's going to come a little bit later. So we clear on um, Constantine's early um, career so far. Do we have any questions on that? Uh, on what's going on? To the difference between Diocletian, the great persecutor, and Constantine, um, now the legalizer of Christianity. That's a lot of, uh, lot of, lot of politics that, um, that comes together right there. Might be a bit confusing. Okay, well, in a, just a couple minutes, we're going to um, take a look at Constantine, the actual record of Constantine's conversion, and hopefully that will um, make it a little bit more clear. Uh, it's considered, I would consider this, this moment right here, um, in terms of my half of this course, the, the political, the um, cultural, sociological history of Christianity, probably the single most important event after the, the writing of the New Testament, this, this shift from Christianity being um, illegal and outside the established order to being a part of it and then in, within a century actually being on top of the established order and, set up, and setting the agenda for um, Western culture for the next thousand years. Yeah? Before Constantine's um, conversion, how popular was Christianity in the empire? And totally heard of it, they've been exposed to it. I think popular popular take on it that seems to get around is that Constantine kind of forced it on everybody and maybe that he does. You might be going somewhere mm -hmm. in that direction, but just in general, when it was this switch, how common was it on the streets? It was more common in the East than in the West. Um, so estimates, 
again, remember, take all, all numbers with a large grain of salt um, for this period, but estimates for the West might have been as low as 15% of the population. Um, estimates in the East, probably not over 50%, probably under. Um, certainly a very large uh, minority belief system and cultural phenomenon, um, but definitely not the dominant one yet. Um, there's, there have been, people have gone a couple of directions with looking at Constantine, and the, the sort of more traditional one has been, and, and you know, going back even to his biographer, is that um, Constantine was essentially riding a wave of popular Christianity, and he saw that this is the, this is the future, and we need to, I, I need to get on board, or, you know, Diocletian had it wrong, um, he was fighting the inevitable, and I am now going to, to, to become a part of this, and I'm going to use Christianity to pull my entire empire together, because it's so strong that it, I, I would rather do that than fight it. And more modern scholarship has swung in sort of in the other direction and realized that, at least from Constantine's perspective, there's no way numerically for him to know that Christianity is the one that's going to win out. I mean, it's certainly strong and on the rise, but then so are many other um, Eastern-type faiths that were coming in and laying, laying, coming into contact with traditional Greco-Roman religion at the time. And that Constantine's conversion, therefore, um, it's not something that we can dismiss as purely political, that at least in terms of human, you know, um, motivations toward uh, obtaining power over the empire, Christianity was not the most obvious choice to get you there. Um, and so there are these two different ways of, of looking at Constantine. So I think that uh, the, the traditionalist uh, idea of saying that his motive for talking about this vision was one of um, enlisting a powerful force on his own side is probably doesn't carry a lot of weight. He, he had to be sincere about, um, about his conversion because it wasn't to his political advantage at the time. There were, there were good things about it, and there were things that he used, and by the time he dies, the, the picture is starting to change. But he has a very long reign, and in 312, um, it, it was not as sure of that. Yep. Was it passively accepted, or how, how did the populace take this? Uh, for example, reading the history of England, that the state religion was changed to the king, and the subjects would react accordingly. Uh, is there any, any cases where people actually uh, rebelled against the, this toleration? Uh, there are, actually, and we'll be talking about that um, a little bit later in this session right here. There's one very notable instance of an emperor after Constantine going back to paganism, and that is a good point where you can see the the mixed support that he gets in that project about 50 years after Constantine's conversion um, will give you an idea of how the population has been handling this change. But remember, the change initially is not one of now we're all going to be Christians. Uh, the change is now Christianity is okay. And the emperor happens to be a Christian, so maybe it would be in your favor to start uh, converting over, if you, especially if you have political aspirations. But um, People are definitely not being forced to become Christians at this point. Yes? What is the, um, can you refresh my memory what the geographical line is between the East and the West? Um, so the Adriatic Sea between Italy and Greece is essentially the dividing line. Um, Italy and everything West, 
Spain, France, Britain, um, North Africa, west of, of Italy is the Western Empire. Greece, modern Turkey, um, modern Israel, Egypt are all east. Okay, so going beyond the Edict of Milan, um, another 11 years in the future, in the year 324, Constantine is feeling a bit stronger. He's made some important political maneuvers, and he now feels um, capable of challenging his last rival, Licinius, the emperor of the East, who is not himself a Christian, who is still a pagan. And Constantine uses um, that, uses his faith in part to encircle Constantine by making an alliance with the Armenian kingdom, which is even further um, to the east of the Roman Empire. And he is able to defeat Lycanius in 324. And now we've gone back to the original traditional Roman system of one emperor over the entire empire. So Constantine has made it um, back to the hot seat and um, to be in charge of the entire empire. And one of the first things that he does when he is now in charge of the whole empire is that in the next year, in 325, according, because there are some pretty serious disturbances in the church, um, one of them we've already talked about. Now that persecution has ended, there um, are problems within the churches about uh, people who gave in under pressure. And so the lapsus controversy that we talked about last week, that's continuing to go on in a new form. Um, a uh, form that becomes known as the Donatist Schism, named after one of the bishops who was set up as a rival to the official Catholic Church. He's got to deal with that problem, and he's got to deal with a new problem, a new theological problem that Junius is going to be talking about in some detail, called the Arian Controversy, named after a presbyter from Alexandria in Egypt who, had, who ended up shouting some ideas pretty loudly that were heard around the empire um, by some important people who took it up in turn and started to say um, that Jesus is less than God. Jesus is part of the created order, part, not part of the divine order. So I'm going to leave the theology just at that. Um, just, just know that that's, that's what's going on, and then I'll let uh, Genius talk about that controversy in some detail in its intellectual manifestation. However, it has incredibly important political manifestations um, throughout this century that I'm going to be talking about today. So remember, Arian controversy is, is the first of the major Trinitarian controversies, saying what is the relationship of Christ to God? And um, this, now that we have a Christian emperor, it goes all the way to the top of the political order. And Constantine wants, now that he's got this new faith, that he does want to have... Um, a, become a kind of glue throughout the empire, he wants to make sure that that faith is the same everywhere, right? He, he doesn't want it to see um, people radically divided, excommunicating each other, fighting, setting up rival congregations. That's just not going to be good. He's finally, he's fought for the last um, 20 years. He's been fighting civil wars against um, political rivals, and he's finally defeated them all. Now, if we could just get everyone to get along, wouldn't that be fantastic? So in 325, he calls together a church council. Now, church councils have been going on throughout Christian history, going all the way back to Acts 15, about the year 50, where leaders of the church would get together in various groups and um, settle controversies, decide on theological issues. In fact, most of theology in the church is not being done by people sitting in rooms saying, I'm going to put everything together in a nice coherent system and then you can talk about it. It's, it's coming out of controversy. 
coming out of people, as we've seen in the last several weeks um, in both my sessions and Junior's sessions, that people have been coming up with ideas, and those ideas have been challenged. And they've um, one of the ways that these challenges have been settled is in people coming together in groups and councils. And now that we have an empire where it's legal to be Christian, and where the emperor himself is in support of getting some of these differences ironed out, you have something that we call an ecumenical council. Um, the ecumen in Greek was their, their way of talking about the entire world, the entire civilized world. And that, for them, of course, included um, the Roman world. You know, there were some of these lands here and about on the, on the, on the edges, but those weren't really the important ones for, for their sort of cultural center that uh, the Mediterranean coastline was the world. And this is the first council where people can come from everywhere. And they don't come from everywhere quite evenly. It's definitely weighted toward the east, because remember the east is more Christian, the east is more urbanized, bigger, more larger cities, um, where you're going to have more bishops. But their important representatives do come from the west, from Spain, from Italy, from North Africa. And so there's, there are good reasons why you can call this uh, council a, an ecumenical one. And it meets in modern Turkey, uh, pretty close to modern Istanbul, but, not too, um, but on the other side of the strait, on the Asian side. And the Constantine wants this council to settle the Aryan controversy, uh, to settle, ideally, to settle the Donatist controversy, it doesn't, um, to set a date for Easter. This becomes a really important part uh, in, in sort of cultural terms um, and this point in the, the history of Christianity. People, depending on where they are in the empire, have slightly different dating systems, have slightly different ways of calculating when Easter should be. Um, there are rival systems. Should we calculate it in our own entirely Christian way? Should we calculate it based on what the Jews do for calculating Passover? Um, should we calculate uh, Easter that way? And so they try and settle all these differences at Nicaea. Um, and with varying amounts of success. One thing that they do do, though, um, and that Junius, again, will talk about in more detail, is formulate a creed, um, a creed that you've all heard before um, and um, have talked, uh, recited in church many times, um, a creed in which they decide officially that Jesus and the Father are the same in some very important, fundamental way. They are both God without being themselves two separate gods. And so you can see that the Arian controversy is decided against, against the Arian party officially at this council. And that decision, though becoming one of the most important one, bedrock um, decisions in early Christian uh, politics and theology, it is, does not go unchallenged, as we'll see um, in the later parts of this discussion, that it does not. Uh, it doesn't have the final word, even though that that theological formulation becomes so important, particularly in in later church history, as people begin to to look back on this council and say that is the foundation of our Catholic faith. Um, it's again, it's kind of like Constantine converting in 312. At the time, in retrospect, it looks like this is the the, the, the sea change, the moment of going from one thing to another, but at the time it was quite a bit less certain and there would be quite a few more challenges. So that's the, um, the, the big midpoint of Constantine's career is reunifying the Roman Empire and calling together this council. Uh, his career goes on for another 12 years 
where he is actively involved in building churches, uh, particularly in Jerusalem, also in the new city of Constantinople, named after him, Constantine, the new capital of the Roman Empire. So um, remember, the city of Rome at this point is strategically becoming less and less important. It's too far from the hotspots on the borders, and we need a new capital that's going to be closer to places where the emperor needs to be. And one of the things that Constantine does in his reign is he moves the capital from um, the city of Rome to the modern city of Istanbul in Turkey um, at a much more strategic location. And builds, also since this is you know, a relatively unimportant city before he rebuilds it, he starts putting in churches, he starts putting in um, Christian monuments and things like that. Um, also doing so in the Holy Land in Jerusalem. And he arbitrates Christian disputes he becomes the last, sort of the, the final court of appeal in the Donatist schism. The, the Donatists actually send uh, embassies to him three different times, and he keeps um, deciding against them, but they won't give up. And he passes some laws in favor of Christianity, um, helping Christians get money to build churches, and he also passes some laws not so favorable to paganism and, destroy, and starts destroying some pagan temples. Um, so he starts to make this transition over from being simply Christianity, one tolerated religion among the empire, to actually Christianity being the favored religion um, throughout the empire, and using um, the force, the, the, the political weight behind his office um, in favor of Christianity. Um, until his death in 337, um, his death and his baptism. Now remember, as we mentioned last week, um, people use, there, there's been a strain in scholarship saying, oh, see, we know that Constantine's conversion wasn't really sincere because he wasn't even baptized until his deathbed. And it probably wasn't even all that. It probably wasn't even um, him who wanted it done. It was probably his bishop who's like, oh, he's sick, he's almost all the way out, let's make sure that I get to the baptizing before he dies. Um, but in fact, this was fairly common for um, Christians in this period um, being worried about committing sins after baptism, um, particularly if you were in a political position like Constantine's, one where you order um, the death and torture of large numbers of people, where you lead wars, um, where you're going to be directly responsible for violence and things like that. So um, it's fairly common, so we shouldn't say that that makes Constantine less of a sincere convert, but he was not baptized until um, being on his deathbed in 337 was actually laid in state as an emperor, but in the clothing of a catechumen in just the simple white robe, um, as though he were a, a brand new Christian at that point. And that is, um, in a nutshell, the reign of Constantine, one of the most uh, important political and theological figures of the fourth century, and a transitional one from Christianity being persecuted minority religion to a favored religion in the empire. So uh, hand over here. Um, How did he become Constantine the Great? Uh, because his um, political achievements in reuniting the empire, and then from the perspective of Christian historians for being for ending persecution and establishing Christianity. Um, so, from both perspectives, from sort of the secular historical and the um, theological historical perspective, he's a very very important figure. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. 
Okay. Um, I will give two brief answers. The first one, um, I will allow a longer and more in-depth answer to go to Junius next week, um, since he will be discussing um, Trinitarian theology as his main subject. But I will say that um, the short answer to your question, the reasoning behind um, Trinitarian thought is, in reading the Bible and in deciding what salvation means, Christians at this time period were feeling deeply challenged by the idea that they would be saved by anyone um, who was less than God. That for salvation to work, Jesus' claims um, have to make him on par with uh, the Father himself. The, the weight on his shoulders of saving the entire race, human race is too great for any created being to handle. And so when, um, when people start challenging that and explicitly saying, Jesus is less than God, Jesus is the first of all creation, um, many Christians stand up and say, no, that's, that's not how we read our Bibles, that's not what we can say. Um, so I will just leave that question right there, and uh, for next week when Junius will talk about that in um, more detail. And as to your second question, actually, Constantine is responsible for legally making Sunday a day of rest. Um, in the empire, he actually passed a law in 321, making Christianity, um, <coughs> making Sunday the um, an official day of rest. Although notice that the name doesn't change to the Lord's Day or to something along those lines. It actually is Sunday, S-U-N, um, a day devoted to the planetary sun, um, which is an interesting little side note because it's where um, where legally where our Sunday week comes from. <laughs> Um, at least in, with the days that we have, um, the names that we have to the seven, of appendages of seven-day weeks, which are actually all of them planetary in origin. Um, so the ancients believed that there were seven planets, and we get one for each day. And so Constantine, I, I think that he thought he could sort of kill two birds with one stone. He was now a Christian, um, but he also thought that the idea of uh, an unconquered sun was not totally incompatible with Christian theology. And so by making the Lord's Day also a day dedicated to the sun, one day every seven days, he felt like he could kind of um, put something together that would be uh, more unifying. Um, the Roman, traditional Roman week was actually eight days long um, and was based on uh, a market day held every eighth day. And so he ordered officially that that market day become on every seventh day um, so that people would not be out in the fields but would actually be coming into town to sell their wares instead of um, working on um, putting these together. Setting a court to the wall. Not originated, but was established. Yeah, and there continue to be issues with this. It's not. It doesn't become the final word. There, there are going to be more groups, um, especially as Christianity starts to expand further, um, where people are using slightly different calendrical systems, and um, so you know when. When you have the conversion of Britain, all of a sudden you have the question between the Roman and the Irish and the British way of doing things. And so it doesn't go away, unfortunately. But that is one of the, the ways it's in the mix is um, do, you, do you work it off a lunar calendar or off a solar calendar? Do you follow the traditional Jewish 
way of doing things, or do you um, put something together on a, a calendar that it works independently of it? And so um, they came out in favor, I believe, of the um, lunar calendar at Nicaea, but um, I have to get back on that one. Lunar is the Jewish calendar. Lunar is the Jewish. So right. is the. Make it with Passover. Yeah. Right. So no, and that's a good question. Um, the that's our first impulse is when you're going to celebrate something annually, you want it to be historically accurate. This is the day during the year in which this actually happened. Not so much for them. Um, they, in fact, most of the liturgical calendar is put together not so much with the with that idea of historical accuracy in mind, but with an appropriate way, <coughs> an appropriate spacing between um, different days and more and most importantly a, a unified way of celebrating them. So Saints Days, you know, many Saints Days have because you can imagine if you tried to go just the historical route and say when each saint was martyred or um, perform some particular miracle and say, that's going to be the day on which we celebrate this. You would have many overlapping days and then many days that are totally empty. And so these days get spread throughout the calendar. Um, so, for example, December 25th um, was never thought in the early church to be the actual day that Christ was born, but it was already a very important pagan festival in one of the sometimes explicit policies of um, church leaders in this period was well, if we have large numbers of people who are already culturally accustomed to celebrating on these particular days and celebrating these particular places, let's have Christian festivals on those particular days and let's build Christian churches in those particular places. So this is where pagans used to go to meet, to, you know, this is where Druids used to go to celebrate their rites. Let's build a church there. People already go there. Why, why build a church over here and have people still sneaking off to go to their ancient pagan place? Um, why not have them why not have this now be a Christian thing? So instead of celebrating the birth of Myth Mithras, one of the um, one of the uh, relatively new Eastern gods that was very popular in the Roman army, whose birthday was celebrated on December 25th, why don't we make that the day that we celebrate the birth of Christ instead? Um, so it was actually a rather deliberate policy on the part of um, early Christians to to celebrate um, annual celebrations on days for reasons other than trying to figure out exactly the day on which this, this happened in particular year. So, ben. Yeah, um, could you talk a little bit about how does Constantine's conversion to Christianity and tolerance Christianity play out um, in light of this earlier cult of emperor worship? Was that something that had to be denied or... Yep, so Constantine can't be a god now. Um, he, and he knows that much. Uh, it's, it's, it's debatable just how uh, in-depth his theological understanding was at different points in his life, but he knew that much. Um, and so uh, there is a developing idea um, following Constantine that takes quite a while to get worked out um, and takes various forms in Western history, but the idea of the um, Roman emperor or various, you know, once the Roman Empire splinters into other types of um, state formation, various leaders being Christ's deputy or Christ's vicar on earth and sharing in delegated, delegated secular authority um, 
direct, coming directly or indirectly from God, and there are numerous different ways that this will be expressed and defended in Christian history, but that is a, a very clear turning point, this old Roman idea of um, the emperor himself being a god um, cannot exist under an established Christianity, and um, Constantine starts to make that change. But he doesn't, he, doesn't have a, he doesn't leave behind a fully worked out system for his successors. They're still, they're going to be arguing about that for some time. How much do we know about the Christian response? I mean, was it universally supportive? Were there dissenters saying maybe it shouldn't be as established? Maybe, um, the Christian response was by and large one of relief. Remember, this is coming on the heels of a huge amount of persecution. So there are a few dissenting voices here and there, but for the most part, and there are theologians who start to worry, that start to wonder, you know, Augustine wrestles with this. Says, so now I'm in a situation, you know, he, he, he's right in the thick of the, the Donatist controversy, which has become, by his point, not just a war of words, but actually people attacking one another. And he wonders, am I justified in calling in imperial support on the side of orthodoxy? Am I justified in, in you know, now that we have, that the emperor is on my side, um, will, I, will I use state-supported violence in order to establish um, what it is? what it is that I believe is that right um, because the New Testament doesn't envision this you know I mean the, the this church state relations sketched out very very briefly in Romans um, envision a world in which the um, secular order is at best indifferent to Christianity and probably going to be hostile and yet needs deserves some kind of respect there's no there, there's not an ideology of revolution against the empire but there's almost nothing to be said about what, what to do when you're a Christian and you have the power. Um, so, but for the, the, the initial reaction, mostly relief, and as we'll see in our primary source for today, um, coming from one major church historian, there was a very strong ideology of support for it. Um, the idea that this is part of the culmination of um, the kingdom of God on earth, is to have the king become a son of God. Um, so yeah, that's a that's a great question. And why don't we introduce the the person that we'll be talking, whose uh, voice we'll be hearing on this subject? His name is Eusebius of Caesarea. He was born in about 260 and lived until about 340. So you can see that his lifetime overlaps um, with Constantine. Very, they were very close contemporaries. Um, Eusebius is called the first church historian. There were probably some people writing some bits of church history before him but they, none of them has survived, and Eusebius wrote a very long um, ten-book history of the church from the birth of Jesus up to his own time, um, from which we try and reconstruct much of early church history, because he's one of our major sources for this period. Um, and he's a contemporary source for the Great Persecution and for the life of Constantine. So he was there, he saw it, and so those books of his history in particular are very valuable. Um, they they give us first-hand accounts of what the persecution was like and what it was like, um, what, what was going through Constantine's mind. Um, Eusebius interviewed Constantine a few times later on in his life, um, had personal contact, and wrote a biography of Constantine, from which we'll be reading a couple of um, very important paragraphs. And um, yeah, is our, our major source for, for telling us what was going on in this period. And it's from a Christian perspective, and it's, as you'll see, it's from a very 
positive understanding of this change. It, it, that is, the perspective is that it is a great thing that Christianity um, is now um, been adopted by the Roman Empire and is on its way up in terms of um, its secular fortunes. Uh, he briefly found himself on the wrong side of the Arian controversy, but managed to clarify his views or modify his views depending on um, how you want to interpret what he was doing and get himself um, declared orthodox again. Um, and yes, both Constantine's official eulogist and biographer and um, very happy to see a Christian emperor on the throne. So if you want to uh, turn your hand up over, you'll see this is an excerpt from Eusebius's Life of Constantine. And this is from book one, so talking about early on Constantine's life. And this is actually the account of that vision that I, that I mentioned earlier, um, the point where Constantine becomes a Christian. Um, one point of clarification in the first paragraph is the, um, the predecessor that Eusebius is talking about is actually Constantine's father. His name is Constantius. Eusebius says that Constantius was a Christian. Most other people are a little bit skeptical about it. Um, Constantius, at, at the very least, though, was not on board with persecution. Um, the Great Persecution never really touched Britain, which was under his military control. He essentially took these directives to, to have an empire or a wide persecution and said, yeah, I'll take care of that, and didn't really do anything about it. It's sort of a passive resistance to, to what was going on, which is, seems to be the reason why um, Eusebius thought that he was himself a Christian. But um, beyond that, uh, do we have a volunteer to read paragraph one? So um, paragraph 27 of book one of Eusebius' Life of Constantine. Yeah, Emily. After reflecting, yes. That after reflecting on the downfall of those who had worshipped idols, he made choice for Christianity. Being convinced, however, that he needed some more powerful aid than his military forces could afford him, on account of the wicked and magical enchantments which were so diligently practiced by the tyrant, he sought divine assistance, deeming the possession of arms and a numerous soldiery of secondary importance, but believing the co-operating power of deity invincible and not to be shaken. He considered, therefore, on what gods he might rely for protection and assistance. While engaged in this inquiry, the thought occurred to him that, of the many emperors who had preceded him, those who had rested their hopes in a multitude of gods and served them with sacrifices and offerings had in the first place been deceived by flattering predictions and oracles which promised them all prosperity, and at last had met with an unhappy end, while not one of their gods had stood by to warn them of the impending wrath of heaven. While one alone who had pursued an entity, oh, I'm sorry, who had pursued an entirely opposite course, who had condemned their error and honored the one supreme God during his whole life, had found him to be the savior and protector of his empire and the giver of every good thing. Reflecting on this, and well weighing the fact that they who had trusted in many gods had also fallen by manifold forms of death, without leaving behind them either family or offspring, stock, name, or memorial among men. While the God of his father had given to him, on the other hand, manifestations of his power and very many tokens, and considering farther that those who had already taken arms against the tyrant and had marched to the battlefield under the protection of a multitude of gods had met with a dishonorable end. Reviewing, I say, all these considerations, he judged it to be folly indeed to join in the idol worship of those who were no gods, and, after such convincing evidence, to err from the truth, and therefore he felt it incumbent to him to honor his father's God alone. 
Okay. So what does Constantine find attractive about this one god of Christianity? Success. Success, yeah. Yeah. So that's a bit disingenuous to say that all the predecessors um, died without family and were completely unsuccessful since these predecessors were the ones who in fact built the Roman Empire. So um, you can see that Eusebius is not your most impartial observer, but um, you can see pretty clearly though what um, Constantine's um, psychology is on the situation. Looking, he needs, he needs a victory. And so he starts by praying and saying, all right, who's going to give it to me? Um, what do I know about these gods and how they've performed in the past and what are they going to do about, about it for me now? So next paragraph will um, give us the answer that Constantine got to these prayers. Uh, do we have a volunteer for the next paragraph? Ben, would you mind? Sure. All right. While he was praying, God sent him a vision of a cross of light in the heavens at midday with an inscription admonishing him to conquer by that. Accordingly, he called on him with earnest prayer and supplication that he would reveal to him who he was and stretch forth his right hand to help him in his present difficulties. And while he was thus praying with fervent entreaty, a most marvelous sign appeared to him from heaven the account of which it might have been hard to believe had it been related by any other person. But since the victorious emperor himself long afterwards declared it to the writer of this history, when he was honored with his acquaintance and society, and confirmed his statement by an oath, who could hesitate to accredit the relation, especially since the testimony of after time has established its truth? He said that about noon, when the day was already beginning to decline, he saw with his own eyes the trophy of a cross of light in the heavens above the sun and bearing the inscription, Conquer by this. At this sight, he himself was struck with amazement and his whole army also, which followed him on this expedition and witnessed the miracle. So, the defining moments in the establishment of Christianity. What are some of your reactions to that? Good grief. <laughs> Yeah, it's a definitely an important stop along that along that road. So was he impressed by Paul conversion? And he decided to somehow make it a woman. Or maybe he had exactly like Paul as well, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean we know the guy does does that kind of thing and so maybe he, he did that kind of thing with this message too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean that's my first reaction that we're all kind of going, Oh come on, but Yes, and they'll um, they'll describe it a little bit more in the coming paragraph. Um, no, that that is not the that's not the, the, the that's not what he saw in the vision. Um, this is what is told to him in the vision, um, told to him by God in a dream afterward. Yeah. So he has multiple he has multiple revelations. Yeah. 
312. Winter of 311 to 312. Um, high up in the mountains. So you can see it's a very short day. By noon, the, the sun's already declining. Um, one, um, A. James Jones, one of the, the greatest historians of um, the later Roman Empire, says, Ah, yes, clearly, as Constantine was um, traveling over the Alps, he saw you know, a well-known alpine phenomenon of a halo around the sun um, with an impending storm. I've actually seen one of these before. And, um, uh, it's a fairly well-known meteorological phenomenon um, before snow and high altitudes. Um, doesn't exactly look like a cross with Latin written underneath it <laughs> to me. <laughs> um, but Jones was happy to say that's what Constantine really saw. Is there historical evidence that he took this, so I mean, this is an account 20 years later of what right. happened prior. So are there accounts of after this that, you know, they, they were carrying this as the war standard that he was implementing within the empire of these things? Right. There's um, another independent account of um, of Constantine's conversion experience. There's not um, a large amount of evidence from like three thirteen, three fourteen, of um, you know people talking about these shields and talking about this um, this symbol being written on them and things like that. So it's actually a bit iffy because. Most of the information comes from Constantine himself about 20 years after the fact and um, after a long career of promoting Christianity. Yeah? However, you have to take into account that something happened. You do. Mm -hmm. Yes. But there was a big change. And maybe he embellished 20 years mm -hmm. later, but still, something happened that day. And you have to take into account the fact that at that time, there, there was very little political motivation for him to, to convert to Christianity. Contra um, contrast this with the conversion of um, the, the king of the Franks. His name is Clovis at the end of the 5th century. By that time, converting to Christianity was the, the ancient equivalent of sort of declaring that your, your group of people, your nation, your tribe, was on its way out of third world and into first world status. You know, it was, it was the sign of taking part in the continuation of classical culture as it had been um, taken up by Christianity and um, been transformed by it and it was so there were many there are many instances in the coming centuries in which um, wholesale conversions of large peoples are very obviously politically motivated this one quite a bit more ambiguous um, it seems like Constantine had some kind of genuine experience at this point and really believed that his um, Unexpected victories that followed this were um, direct theological confirmation of what he was, um, what he had experienced. Yeah. If you had this whole amulism, were they just so unimportant historically that there would be no accounts of any of them? Yes, actually. That's <laughs> 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 that's 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 what happens, and this is. This is one of the more well-attested centuries of um, um, history in this period, and we, wouldn't have, we don't have a single account from a, a single Roman um, in the army, and it's not that unexpected that we don't have it. Um, it's more unusual that we have such a well-documented um, life of Constantine, actually. Um, so the, this document is more the exception than, rather than the rule. Um, and so do we have somebody to read this last short paragraph? Um, 
that explains this little sign that I've um, drawn on your paper right here. Yes, please. How the Christ of God appeared to him in his sleep and commanded him to use in his words the standard that he standard made in the sign of the cross. He said, moreover, that he gathered within himself what the import of his apparition could be. And while he continued to ponder and redraw his meaning, night suddenly came on. Then in his sleep, the Christ of God appeared to him with the sign, the same sign which he had seen in the heavens, and commanded him to make a likeness of that sign which he had seen in the heavens. So I apologize. Your question, yes, um, it is the same sign, um, the, both in the dream afterward um, and in the um, actually standing over the sun um, in his vision. And uh, according to Eusebius' description, it's, a, it's slightly vague, and these are two different possibilities um, that I've drawn right here about what that sign could have looked like. Um, the the importance of it, though, is Yes, it, it resembles a cross, but it's actually composed of two Greek letters, chi and rho, um, which are the first two letters of the word Christ in the Greek language. And um, that's, depending on how you put them, superimpose them over one another, they look like either the sign on the left or on the right. And in Christian iconography from this period and from later periods, you see both about equally um, in different manifestations of either pictures of this exact scene, which are in churches all around the Mediterranean, or of um, you know, later use of this name. It becomes a, a major symbol for um, Christianity and for the name of Christ himself. Um, so mosaics and things like that. Does have it, this all over the place. Does it continue to have more or like aggressive implications? It does. Um, not exclusively, but ever since this battle, you cannot um, look at that symbol and divorce it from its its history of um, military conquest that's involved. So when Eusebius talks about this, he paints it in terms of um, the expansion of the kingdom and a, a reward for those who were faithful through the persecution, that they get to emerge on the other side and not only to, to be free of the possibility of more persecution, but to actually have the resources of the empire put behind them to, to convert both the rest of the pagans that are in the empire and then start moving beyond it. Um, so he sees it as a major step forward in the advancement of the kingdom of God. Um, and isn't particularly worried about the consequences of having um, uh, the state apparatus and you know the threat of violent coercion on the side of Christian faith. So was Jesus' method like insufficient now? He thought this was a continuation of that. Okay. Yeah, that Christianity would go through the period where it was downtrodden and expanded beyond all expectations, but that now the, the tide is turning, that people, enough people have become Christians that the emperor himself could become Christian and that um, this entire civilization would be devoted toward um, the expansion of the Christian message. Right, I can follow yeah. up on that. I mean, that <clears throat> especially among Protestant Christians, Constantine gets such a bad reputation because of the sense that 
Constantine married church and state, and then that led to Catholic hegemony and Catholic authority and sort of polluting of the gospel. Um, most of the of our understanding of Trinitarian theology and the fact that really with the, the, the charge of Arianism and Donaldson coming up probably could not have been met in an empire where Christianity did not have the freedom to get together from all over the world and talk about it. If we couldn't have had ecumenical councils, if we couldn't have had Christianity not, had the Edict of Milan not happened, then it's very unlikely the church would have been able to meet the heresies that were about to come up. So, yes, there's a lot of ambiguous, bad stuff surrounding what's going on here that comes out in later history, but at the same time, God's providence is still at work here, and I think it would be really would not be in our best interest to be too quick to move Constantine to the side of, oh, it's political, oh, he made this up. I mean, there's, there's a lot that's necessary for us getting where we are that's taking place in this. Yeah, I think it's a good point to, to balance out the um, ideas of moving away from a sort of primitive gospel um, and the belief that um, Christ's hand is at work in the church in every age of the, the, the church's development and there it's going to be mixed in the wheat and the tares um, at all times and going to take different manifestations. But um, to see that there are um, important and good things that come out of this ability of Christians to communicate with one another um, throughout um, the Christian world um, unhindered is, is an important counterbalance to that question. Right? I have a quick question about that. Uh, this symbol again. Yes. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. There's an there's another Orthodox cross that looks slightly different um, that has a different history and comes up later. But this symbol is also um, used in modern Orthodox churches. Yeah. Tala. Speaking of messed up stuff, <laughs> uh, the controversy after Nicaea uh, just doesn't go away. And to talk about this very briefly, so after after Nicaea, it wasn't um, the it had some popularity issues. Um, not everybody was very excited about this this talk about um, God and God the Father and God the Son being of the same substance. The word that's used for it. Um, the, the, the important word that gets batted around for the rest of the century is called homoousios, same substance, and it's not in the New Testament. And people have a lot of problems with that. They're like, we should be able to build a creed out of the vocabulary of the New Testament. We shouldn't be adding in these terms that have ambiguous Greek philosophical credentials behind them. Um, and this is going to go back and forth. Constantine himself will have some doubts about the creed, and at times seems like he's kind of sort of trying to sweep it under the rug and maybe 
come up with something a little bit more general that more people can rally around. Um, his sons are, in fact, take up the Aryan position and rule. There are three of them, and, well, three of them that are left. Um, Constantine is uh, accused of um, actually uh, murdering the first and the old, oldest one, and then the, the other three take each other out um, until there's only one left standing afterward, and they are themselves Aryan. Um, becomes a political issue with rivalries throughout the empire um, for, for the throne and for dynastic succession. Um, there would be there would be Aryan and Orthodox parties that are involved in this. Um, Athanasius of Alexandria, his career uh, illustrates this. He was a bishop in Egypt and who lived through, as you can see, most of the fourth century controversies. He gets exiled five different times for upholding um, Nicene Orthodoxy steadfastly when whole part when whole sections of the empire were going back to a sort of um, a type of Aryan um, theology. And in the midst of this, there is one last major resurgence of paganism under the emperor known as Julian the Apostate. Apostate comes from the Greek apostasis, to stand away from. Um, so Julian was um, Constantine's great nephew, and he was raised a Christian and seemed to be a Christian for his early life. But one, as soon as he got up on top of the throne, he um, said, by the way, everyone, I'm not a Christian. I'm actually a pagan, and we're going to try and roll back the clock a little bit and see if we can't get paganism back on its traditional footing. Um, he's a fascinating character who ruled for only two years. Um, he was killed by a spear on campaign against the Persians, possibly thrown from his own side, um, possibly by a Christian. We don't actually know um, exactly how he ended up dead, but one of the things that he did, he's interesting because uh, lots of modern historians look back at him. He had a, a position of radical tolerance um, radical religious tolerance, a little bit like the Edict of Milan, but even more so. He wanted um, everybody to have a, a chance, and he saw he looked at divisions in Christianity and said, that's the fundamental weakness. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to recall all the exiles. So in the Aryan Orthodox controversy, you have emperors constantly exiling troublesome bishops. He brings everybody back in. He brings Manichaeans back in. He brings, and of course, pagans back in. So he wants um, everybody to come together, and he thinks that, well, if, I, if Christians all come together, they're just going to tear each other to pieces. And I want to see that happen. So under the cloak of religious tolerance, I want to see Christianity crash and burn, was his idea. But with only two years to implement his policies, um, there was a relatively um, lukewarm response to what he was doing. There, he's another one of these emperors. He's actually left us a great deal of his own writing. Um, and there are um, historians who have, um, who have detailed his reign in um, you know, several, several books, and so actually we know quite a, quite a lot about him. And we see him coming up to pagan temples um, in the 360s and saying, I want to make sacrifice here. What's going on? He looks at the temple, the facade's falling down. Um, there's one priest left here where 50 years ago there would have been 100 of them, and he's in his 80s and hasn't sacrificed anything more than a chicken in the last 20 years because he hasn't had the money to do it. People haven't been giving money to those temples, and so he starts pumping money back into pagan temples. But it seems to be too little too late. And by the 360s, 50 years after Constantine's conversion, it's the, the balance is tipped. Um, Christianity is now more, uh, is now the majority in the empire, and paganism now seems to be the minority. And um, Julian has a really tough time getting paganism back on, trying to get it on his feet. And in fact, 
Julian's concept of paganism is very different from the way that it was practiced before the rise of Christianity. He grew up as a Christian, and he thinks of, of paganism in Christian terms, even though he rejected the Christian message. He thinks of it um, in terms of, he has you know, the concept of one high god over the pantheon of other gods. He has the concept of trying to regularize pagan theology and come up with a systematic way of looking at things, which is very much a Christian idea, not a pagan one. Pagans didn't write theology. Um, Greeks wrote philosophy, but um, people, when they're talking about the gods, don't try and fit them all together into one coherent system. So it seems like when Julian is trying to resurrect paganism, he can't even do it without a Christian um, foundation underneath. And ultimately, his project fails. He is um, killed, whether by Persians or, or by a Roman, it's a little bit unsure. And every Roman Empire, every Roman emperor after him will be a Christian, whether Arian or Orthodox is still up in the air for a little while. But um, this is the last, last chance of paganism to try and make its um, resurgence. And it's a fairly feeble um, endeavor for, and doesn't really go very far. So following this, the Arian controversy continues on for another 20 years or so. These two doctrinal parties split into multiple ones that use slightly different, very technical um, Greek formulations that Junius is going to be talking about. But um, several of them that are on the what comes to be called the orthodox side start to realize that they have more in common than they have um, against each other. And some very important theologians start to make some um, very important to put out some very important olive branches to one another, and a coalition comes together under a new Roman emperor named Theodosius, who is himself firmly convinced of Nicene Orthodoxy. And um, Nicene Orthodoxy is firmly established in 380. And at the same time, Christianity is also made the only legal religion in the Roman Empire. So we've gone from 312 with um, Christianity uh, being made one legal, or 313, uh, Christianity being made one legal religion to 380. Um, so it takes the better part of a century for um, it's Christianity to make its way to the point where it's illegal to be anything else but a Christian in the Roman Empire. In practical terms, of course, this is, um, doesn't happen overnight. There are still many pagans. There are still very many powerful pagans, particularly in the West, in actually the city of Rome itself. Um, lots of senators remain pagan for a long time, and there's no systematic persecution of paganism like there was of Christianity, although there are multiple temples that are destroyed, and there's, um, there are some instances of violence of, pagan, of Christians mobilized against pagans in this time period, but um, it's not comparable to what went on before. But you can see the switch over this period, for this crucial fourth century. Um, and by 380, Christianity is the only legal religion. And in 381, um, Theodosius calls a second ecumenical council. Now that there's a new emerging consensus, his, his main theological advisors are telling him, hey, it's time. Um, why don't we work this out again? We have another, con another council held, this time at Constantinople, where um, another creed is put together, where um, the, many of these parties come together um, that have been arguing over the Arian controversy. Um, the, the role of the Holy Spirit is um, talked about in much more robust terms in ways that allow for a fully Trinitarian understanding of the relationship of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, and that's the story from AD 312 to 381 um, that uh, I've told in its political ramifications and that uh, Junius will be talking about in its theological ones over the next couple of weeks.
Um, any any last maybe one question before we before we end for this morning? Yeah, Ethiopia is an interesting case because it is um, a Christian, king, uh, it becomes Christian and becomes a Christian kingdom um, with a Christian king very early on, actually before Constantine, and has its own independent, somewhat independent history. Um, it's an exemplar of um, Christianity that develops without, the, without becoming, signing on to the, the creedal formulations of the ecumenical councils. So it's it's one of those examples that shows you that the, the Roman idea, the ecumen of the inhabited world was not the whole world. And of course, we'll see that um, in coming centuries as um, Roman political hegemony falls apart, while at the same time, Christianity begins to expand beyond the borders. And so the Ethiopic church, its traditions have always been slightly different. Its theologies have always been formulated slightly differently from the, the Western tradition of these ecumenical councils. Um, even though it has remained a, a, a strong Christian presence actually since the second century. Um, so that's an example of a non-Roman um, Christian church. Another example would be the Armenian church um, that we will have a chance to talk about um, briefly in the coming weeks. So yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. So we're a little bit um, over our 10 o'clock time, so if you will um, close with me in prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you. Um, that you have had your hand on your church, church throughout its history, Lord, and that um, in this period we see the the difficulties that um, Christians have with coming into power, Lord, and yet we also see the strength that many Christians show um, in their convictions, their their strength in holding to their theological ideas when they were not politically expedient God and setting examples for the rest of us um, in future centuries, Lord, when um, many of these issues will come up over and over again, God. And I thank you that, um, that you are here and that you have made it possible for us to be talking about these events today, Lord, and gaining understanding from them. And in the name of Jesus' name I pray, Lord. Amen. Thank you.